another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you today from Arlington, Texas, episode 363 of the Survival Podcast. Today is Monday, January 25th. 2010, and again, yes, we are on episode 363, it's amazing how time flies, uh, it seems like it wasn't that long ago, I was going, this is the first episode of the Survival Podcast, but along the way, we created some t- traditions, and one of them is really Listener Feedback Monday, and on, on Monday, we take your uh, emails, and we take your suggestions by email, your questions by email, all that kind of good stuff, and we're going to do that again today. Before we get into that, though, let's start out with uh, our sponsors of the day, Sponsor of the day number one, MERS-radio.com. Again, MERS-radio.com. That's that little dash sign when I say hyphen. Uh, but remember, you can get to all our sponsors' websites easily and make sure you're dealing with the right people by going to thesurvivalpodcast.com first and looking for their banner in the right-hand margin. Why do I love MERS Radio? I love MERS Radio because of the way that it blends together um, security and additional communication capabilities. So we have these little handheld radios in our house that I purchased from MERS-radio.com, and we're able to extend our communications to about a little over a mile around our neighborhood with our handhelds. But we also have a base station, and we have motion detectors at various points around our property. And if anybody attempts to enter the property, or if somebody like one of our animals attempts to exit the property, we're immediately notified back to the base station and the handhelds if we have them on. So it's really cool. I recommend you check it out. Um, I'm really impressed with what MERS has done for our home, uh, even our small home here in Arlington. And I know it's going to have a big impact on our security levels up in Arkansas where we're dealing with a much larger and more remote piece of land. So check out MERS Radio. You get first-class service from the owner directly if you have any questions or tech support needs. Next up today, SOE Tactical Gear, John Willis's Willis's operation. Uh, John just got back from SHOT Show, told me, man, you should have came, and I wish I could have been there because John's a great guy. And, you know, his company started out because we had people in in, uh, our elite units like the Navy SEALs and Special Forces uh, and other special operators that said, hey, um, we don't have equipment that we're issued that really can do everything that we need out in the field and can stand up to the rigors that we put it under. And they started looking for custom-built gear. And when they did that, they started looking at John. And if you buy some of his equipment from him directly or through his reseller, such as Tactical Response, uh, you're going to find out it is the best equipment money can buy. I posted a video not too long ago. They took two of his uh, belts, put them together, and tried to pull them apart with two huge trucks. And uh, the trucks ended up in a, in a, like a tug-of-war tie and couldn't destroy their belts. That's the kind of equipment this guy builds. This is stuff that... When your grandkids talk about granddad who's gone on with their kids and their grandkids, if you hand that equipment down, they'll still have it. They'll still be using it. That's how good this stuff is. All right, so moving on from there, join our forum, get involved. Please be part of our forum. If you're not part of our forum, why aren't you part of our forum? I'll leave it at that today. Um, do check out our gear shop, T-shirts, challenge coins, all that good stuff. And uh, last but not least, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, 
I've got a lot of stuff coming. Probably this week I'll be doing a lot more videos. I did three last week. I think they came out pretty good. Uh, a bunch of new stuff has shown up in the mail. Uh, I'm going to be doing some stuff with dehydrating food. I'm going to be doing some stuff with uh, with uh, the uh, the the new, uh, storage bucket project that we're going to be doing. We're going to be building out two buckets with food that you can buy in your grocery stores and either self-prepare for long-term storage or it's already suitable. Lots of stuff coming this week, so subscribe to YouTube. And uh, before we move on into uh, the, uh, the, the main body of the show, there's two more things I want to talk about. One, briefly, Member Support Brigade. Get involved with the Member Support Brigade with a contribution of $5 a week or $50 a year. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members and a slew of discounts and a slew of free ebooks and a slew of free other stuff. Um, the, the value is really extreme now. It, it's something that even if you didn't want to support the show, it's financially uh, beneficial to become a uh, an MSB member. I got three people coming in over the next week. One's already here, and it's my fault that I don't have them set up yet, but I'll take care of that uh, today, uh, tomorrow at the latest. That's Smith Werder. Uh, we're going to get them set up with a special deal for MSB members. I believe it's going to be free shipping, and these guys do things like once-fired brass uh, and things like custom leather bags uh, for concealed carry for ladies. So this is a really cool little site. I'll get them added probably today. I'm going to do what I can to do that. Um, high mowing uh, organic seeds is uh, in discussions with us for a discount. We just don't know what yet. And I keep promising it, but I'm going to get on their case this week now. Finally, hey, let's get the discount code set up with Seeds of Change. So we're bringing in two organic seed providers. We're bringing a custom leather and, uh, you know, kind of one fire brass and thing like that uh, shop. So we keep adding more and more discounts and special deals for the member support brigade folks. So do consider doing that. Um, I also want to tell you, i got two guests coming on the show this week. One is going to be Tammy from Dehydrate to Store. Uh, Dehydrate to Store, she does these videos on YouTube. I recommend them a lot. Uh, really lovely lady that goes through a lot of information and provides a lot of information from her website, dehydratetostore.com, uh, where you can uh, f- find out all different ways to store food long-term through the process of dehydration and a lot of information on how to cook with that food. So I'm really excited to bring her on. I've been a fan of her YouTube channel for, oh, I guess about eight months now. So she's coming on. And also later this week we're going to have Cam Mather on. And it looks like I'm going to probably have these interviews set up for you to run Thursday and Friday um, to to, uh, to get things expedited and done throughout the week and make the end of my week maybe a little bit easier. Um, maybe it'll be Wednesday and Thursday because we want to do uh, call it Friday as usual. Anyway, uh, Cam Mather is the author of a book called Thriving During Challenging Times, The Energy, Food, and Financial Independence Handbook, and he'll be with us uh, this week uh, to talk about how to gain independence from the systems and tell you how he's doing it on his very remote location up in Ontario, and that'll be a great interview. So with that, uh, let's get into the main body of the show today. Let's start taking some of your questions and comments by email. So the first one today comes to us from Eric in Oregon. Eric says, hey, I've got a little less than five acres in northwestern Oregon. Uh, most of it's woods, but the bottom part's a field. It was formerly a horse pasture, circa 2003, uh, which I've simply been keeping mowed since then. I'd like to put in a garden next spring, and I need to get um, the ground broken. My local guy uh, with tractor recommended I kill the grass with Roundup prior to have it plowed. He said it's necessary, otherwise the grass will just come right back. 
He said Roundup will dissipate after a few weeks. I'm concerned it will linger in the soil and affect my garden. Is he correct, or is there a better way to break the ground? Um, the best thing you can do, now I assume you're talking about a garden, not a farm, uh, which a farm might be a little harder to get into production this way in a, in a reasonable amount of time, but a, a typical garden that you would be doing for you and your family and maybe even a little bit of a market garden is not that big. So tell your friend with the tractor to keep his tractor away from your property unless he's delivering mulch or compost for you with a front-end loader bucket on it. And don't break the ground. Um, right now, go out and start looking for cardboard. Look for refrigerator boxes. Look for washer and dryer boxes and things like that. You should be able to find massive amounts of it. Plan the area that you want to uh, grow your garden and where your beds are. Make sure that you make the beds no wider than you can reach in from each side, so about four feet is maximum for your bed width. And lay down cardboard everywhere you want to grow stuff that's not going to be grass. Lay it down on the ground, cover it with about two inches of compost, and then about four inches of mulch. Just do that now. Go ahead and do it. And uh, the grass underneath there will, will be at least 99%, if not better, killed. And when it comes time to plant, you're pretty much going to plant into your compost layer. And even if you don't have raised beds that are supported, you're going to be building up anyway. All right, you don't have to always put in, you know, wood or concrete or anything to hold your raised beds together. They'll stay put if you build them this way and just keep piling up on top of them. So you're going to pretty much cut into your, your cardboard below your compost, but you don't even have to plant that deep into there and then backfill the compost and the mulch uh, that you've created for your garden. And, and grow your garden that way and never dig your soil ever. There's no need to dig. And I know if you've listened to this show you know, 14 months ago, I talked about digging a lot because I didn't know any better. But as I've learned more and more about permaculture, stop disturbing your soil layers. When you do that, you give the opportunity for weeds to grow and grass to grow. And you, you do get an instantaneous kind of supercharged growth response to your soil, but it dissipates very, very quickly, and then it doesn't come back. Eventually, you kill the soil if you keep tilling it. If you doubt that, go out to a farm where they've been farming for five or more years, anything beyond that will even just prove the point better. Uh, even if they do what they call organic farming with just lots of organic fertilizer, uh, but where they plow the soil every year. Go out in the middle of one of those fields, take a trowel, and dig yourself up a scoop of the soil, drop it into your hand, and you know it's a time of the year when it hasn't rained much, it's kind of dry, crumble it in your hand and watch it fall to the ground and look at what it looks like. It looks like sterile dust. And that's pretty much what it is. Stop digging. Now on the Roundup. Roundup used to have on its label that it was biodegradable. It doesn't say that anymore. Why? Because it's been proven that it's not biodegradable. It doesn't break down, dissipate, and go away to nothing. Now it's true that if you treat an area with Roundup, it'll kill everything that's there. And a few weeks later you can plant it. It'll probably grow just fine. It doesn't mean that the chemicals themselves are gone. And then on top of this... You're financially supporting Monsanto, so you know how I feel about that, because that's who makes Roundup, is Monsanto. So I would never buy Roundup again for the rest of my life. The day that I found out about Monsanto and the day that I found out how evil those bastards are, um, I decided that if I ever needed a herbicide, that I damn sure wouldn't buy anything made by Monsanto, because I will not patronize those people. So even if you used a herbicide, find something else. 
Now, don't ask me what else because I'm done with it. I don't use herbicides anymore, so I'm not really sure uh, what I would recommend there. But for your situation, all you need is cardboard, compost, and mulch. And uh, if you do that, in fact, this early in the year, if the soil's that good, it's a horse pasture. There's probably tons of horse manure worked into that soil and all. You might not even really need much of the, in the way of compost. You might just need to go in there, throw down that, that uh, cardboard, mulch it, and then dig into your subsoil, but only where you plant. Just just cut a hole with your trowel right through that cardboard. It'll take about a season. That cardboard will rot away to nothing. And uh, you're, you're going to have some problem with grass. But when your friend says, ah, oh, look, the grass is back because you didn't kill it, he's full of crap. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Because even if you kill the grass everywhere you're going to plow it, the grass is going to send runners, runners in from the outside. So the other thing you can do to kind of minimize that is go ahead and in between your garden rows, and in between your raised beds, and for some distance out, mulch that as well. Uh, but you can mulch that with something that's a little less necessary for uh, for breakdown, so something that's a little bit more long-term of a mulch, and maybe even frame that in a little bit. Uh, that'll help keep things back uh, from your garden as well. Uh, but that's what I would do. That's what I'm going to do from now on. I'm not digging into soil anymore. Unless I'm putting something down there to plant it. I'm not tilling. I'm not double digging. I'm not doing any of it. I suggest you don't either. Uh, next one comes from Bart in Arkansas. Uh, Bart in Arkansas says, I was wondering if you had any advice on how to prep if, uh, if you are a long haul truck driver and only home every two to three weeks. I'm not a driver, but once was, and I am curious. Well, Bart, um, I think you're probably better suited to, to more accurately answer that question uh, than I am because I've never been a long-haul truck driver even for a little bit. Uh, that said, during a portion of my life, I was um, a traveling contractor in the telecommunications industry very, very early in my career, very young guy, just out of the Army back in those days, and uh, was in my slumber where I had forgotten the wisdom of my grandparents and, and my parents, uh, at least my father's wisdom on prepping. And um, was just trying to survive uh, financially and, and establish myself and get out of a minimum wage existence. And took a job that paid decent, not good, but decent. Um, most people wouldn't even consider a living wage today, even though we're only talking about 1994 here, I guess. Um, and I began doing that job, and I traveled... Uh, primarily between New Orleans and uh, El Paso, which is quite a piece of ground. And I would be gone for a week at a time, but I would stay in hotels. I wouldn't be quite in the same situation that maybe a lot of long-haul truckers were. But there was a portion in time there where I was really so broke and really trying to get established and, and things like that that I would sleep maybe one or two nights a week in my vehicle and then do the rest in a hotel, and that would save me some money. And I kind of lived out of my vehicle a little bit here and there. And if I was going to keep doing it, I was even looking at getting maybe a little uh, travel trailer or something like that. Because sometimes we'd get on assignments. It might be in Houston for four weeks. So I'd be down to Houston and then home on the weekends back to Dallas. So I have a little bit of a frame of reference for the type of situation that you're in. And I would say that in some ways that you might be better prepared at least while you're on the road, than the average person because you're accustomed to long distances, needing reserve fuel. Uh, most truckers have pretty good sleeper cabs on their rigs today, especially long-haul drivers. Um, so making sure that you've made your rig into kind of the ultimate bug-out vehicle with an understanding that sometimes bugging out means getting the hell out of where you are and back home. So I think that is a... Uh, 
a really big part of things. I think the other side of it, though, is your home preps. It, it may be ideal for a trucker. And here's what I mean by that. You might be gone from your house for three weeks. So things like milk and eggs in your refrigerator, especially if you don't have mama back home with some kids waiting on you, um, kind of goes bad. You know, it's, it, 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 you know, you're, even if they're there, you're not drawing from the supply. So you have kind of these acute, uh, needs and then a flat line of no needs at home. So you got this up and down, uh, requirement from the house. So when you start looking at long-term storage foods, but foods that you eat every day, they make perfect sense for a trucker. So things like powdered, powdered eggs, powdered milk, dehydrated cheeses and things like that, uh, start to, you know, work together, dehydrated vegetables, things that can be used to quickly make good home cooked meals. So when you're home, you're finally home, but then add to that long-term storage. I think the big thing that you need though is a plan of how am I going to get home if something happens while I'm away? What is my most expedient way to do that? You know, beyond, um, what am I trying to say? Beyond the, the normal routes that you usually take. So having alternate route planning and things like that. I think truckers are pretty good with that as well. So again, the trucker may be the perfect prepper. Uh, only The only bad part is he might have his his uh, primary location in New Hampshire and be in California when the shit hits the fan. Hopefully you're paying attention to things. If tensions really start to rise, maybe you pull back. Maybe you don't make a run for a week. You have to, you know, make the same judgments that we all do. We, I live in Arlington. I'm right in the middle of, uh, you know, if the shit hits the fan, this place is going to be a disaster. Seriously, there's 6.2 million people in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Now, that's a lot less population density, though, than even, like, let's say Houston has. Uh, certainly less population density than a lot of northeastern cities with smaller populations. Because when I say Dallas-Fort Worth, I think some people think of a city. If you've never been here, this place is spread out. Like you, There's a reason there's that many people here. Um, we are way, way spread out between just Fort Worth and Dallas. But I wouldn't want to be here in a shit at the fan. So I've got to make decisions like, okay, do I let my wife go to work today? So the, the trucker has to make those same sorts of decisions. So I think it's really you do the same thing that everybody else does. But, you know, and that is be prepared to be without systems of support. And then you have to look at custom tailoring your unique situation. Now, I guess the best thing that could happen is you could be hauling a, uh, a truck full of like long-term storage grain, only be 15 miles from home when the shit hits the fan, and uh, take your supplies with you. And sorry, guys, I can't make this run. Um, but uh, you know that's that's kind of a Pollyanna idyllic situation. It's not likely to happen. Um, but be prepared to need to get home. And also be prepared, if you have a remote location, to make sure that family you might be leaving behind can get there to meet you if you need to meet somewhere other than at home because that has become the imminent threat. That's the best I can do. Never been a trucker, so hopefully I've done okay with that uh, question. Let's get to take another one. Okay, this one comes from Ren. And uh, if you remember way back, if you guys are old-timers here, when I first launched the show, I did a 1,000-listener uh, contest. I said we got to a 1,000 listeners. If you'd help me by telling other people with the listener appreciation contest, I'd give away a uh, engraved iPod. And this guy is Ren, and Ren's the guy that won that iPod. So this guy's a long-term listener, so it's fitting, I guess, I ask his, answer his question. Uh, Ren says, Jack, love your podcast about permaculture. It's a core survival idea for my family. Can you discuss in more detail ideas and foundation plannings for permaculture for zone one ideas and i'll talk about what that is for those that don't know in a second right near the house 
my wife wants to re-landscape, but I'm going to use this opportunity to apply some edible landscaping, attract local, local food, wildlife, rabbits, songbirds, etc. Sort of have the food come to us in a shit-hit-the-fan situation. As always, great show, and thanks again. So, um, yeah, let me start out with, well, what is Zone 1, anyway, if, we're, if, if you're not familiar with the concept? Permaculture takes place, often I've even said five zones, it's really six zones. Because permaculture zone zero is inside the walls of your house. And that's down to how you run your energy and everything else. So it's, uh, zone, zone zero is inside the home. So zone one is the stuff that's the closest to the house. And this might not be like a perfect circle around your home. In fact, it probably isn't. It's probably not a perfect rectangle. Zones are kind of flowing in the way that they're shaped based on your property, your wind exposure, your solar exposure. But just to cut to the chase, zone one is the stuff that when you walk out your door, as soon as you walk out any door of your house, you're in zone one. So these are the things that need the most attention or provide us the most day-to-day satisfaction and beauty or provide us the most day-to-day food and substance. We also have to take into account how they affect the home in either pushing away energy uh, sources or allowing energy sources in or harvesting energy sources. So let's talk about one of my first suggestions for Ren. Odds are that somewhere on your property or outside of your home, you have either a patio or a deck attached to your house. Most people do. If you don't, you may want to consider creating that as part of your new landscape theme. And odds are that at some portion of the day, the sun, while it's high in the sky in the summertime, is beating down onto that patio, making it blistering hot and nearly unbearable, and you don't really want to be out there. Now, the other side of this is, in the wintertime, you might have the sun low in the sky, hitting the windows and the wall of the house from that side, where it's a very welcome thing because you want to allow the sun's energy in. So, does that make sense? Here, we're not just talking about what we're going to eat. We're talking about how we're going to look at the energy that's on the property. This energy, in, in this instance, being the sun's energy, which is the most obvious and, and, and easiest to understand. That's why I'm using it. So, what we might do is we'll cover our deck with uh, kind of an open covering. So you're talking about things like walls uh, that aren't really closed in. We're just talking about risers coming up. And then if you've ever looked at a lot of decks, have the overhead shading where it's just a series of slats of boards, maybe spaced a foot apart or a foot and a half apart, and they create some shade. But they also allow sun through. Well, now what we do as a permaculturist is we take that one step up. And we say, why don't we do this? Why don't we plant vining plants, let's say, grapes or kiwis or a combination of that on on all sides of our deck and we'll train those vines to grow up and then over the roof of the deck now what does this do well during the summer when the height of growth is going on we have all that beautiful leaf foliage up there that's creating shade it's shading our deck and if we put in something like an outdoor ceiling fan, and that would be something that would be even easy to, you know, relatively easy to run uh, with just one battery and one solar panel and, and one inverter, we could run our ceiling pan solar out there. Now we're using the sun's energy again. We're putting the panel up, or maybe we're tying into solar that runs more parts of the home. It depends, but one way or another, we can create kind of that environment, harnessing the sun's energy in one way and filtering out in another. Now, winter comes, all the leaves on these vining plants fall off because they're deciduous. And we don't you know as long as we don't live in the tropics, and if we do we want them on all the time. The sun gets lower in the sky and it now comes in underneath the cover 
and it's not blocked at all, really, by the vine uh, foliage because it's all fallen off. And now we allow that energy in to heat the home. So one of my first suggestions for Ren, it's considered doing a covered patio and vining plants with some type of edible fruit. Whatever you find appealing, and you can grow grapes and or kiwis uh, of one variety or another just about anywhere in the United States. So those are two big recommendations uh, that I have there. And I also recommend that you look at doing that with trees. If you're going to do dwarf tree plantings or something, or semi-dwarf tree plantings, anytime you're planting trees, look at deciduous trees when you're close to the home. Again, this is to block the sun and then allow the sun through, specifically on things like the southern exposure of the home, uh, because that's where you're going to get uh, the greatest amount of solar energy coming at you uh, in, in the, in the uh, wintertime when you want to let that energy in. So in all things that you do with permaculture, especially in, one, in uh, zone, zone 1, Think about the energy that's on the property. And what I mean by that includes things like wind. So where do your prevailing winds come from? Do you, are they, are they strong, harsh, hot winds that are damaging so that we want to go and plant a windbreak, uh, for some of them? Or at different times of the year, do we have cool, gentle breezes in the evening that we want to allow through? These are things that you think about beyond just you know, what variety of plant do I plant? Where do I place the plant and how do I use it to harness or deflect the energy systems that are on the property themselves? Some of the other things that I suggest you plant close to the home are going to be a variety of fruits, nuts, berries that grow on hedge size objects because if you get things that are too close to the home that are too high, they tend to drop a lot of stuff onto the roof. So you want to push those maybe not out of zone one but a little further out and then bring things close to the house like uh, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, um, strawberries as a ground cover. Bring an herb garden into that. So rosemary, oregano, basil, parsley, um, maybe some tarragon, some thyme. These are all some great things to grow close in zone one. Zone one is where your annual vegetable planting should be. But think about maybe if you, if you're completely redesigning things, you have a new fresh start. Instead of piling everything into raised beds, think about spreading out. Um, your your gardening throughout your system, so you're not ringing the dinner dinner bell for pests. So another thing you might do is the same place you're growing those grapes, right? In the spring, you might right at the base go in and plant uh, peas uh, that are vining peas, and allow them to grow up your grape vines, and they'll grow to about six feet in height, uh, and provide you some food that's right out the door where we can walk out now, grab a few herbs, grab a few snow pea pods in the springtime, and begin using things right away. Look at doing things with uh, d- different varieties of lettuces. A lot of times, places that are close to the home uh, have shade spots, and we see the shade as a, as a, as a, a bad thing hard to grow in the shade. But in the summertime, a lot of our lettuces and even certain varieties of spinach, if you give them a few hours of sun and then give them shade with reflected light off walls and things like that, keep them in a cooler environment, you'll be able to grow them in the heat of the summer when you can't grow them out on other parts of the property. So look at how you can bring things like that in close um, and realize that the whole point of Zone 1 is things that need to be irrigated often, cared for often, or maybe simply appreciated often. Your grapes need very little day-to-day care. You basically prune them once a year uh, and harvest them as the grapes become uh, available to you. But 
they're very enjoyable and they serve a function. So even though they would easily work and you might have them more grapes planted in zone two or even out in zone three, there's a good case made for bringing them in because of their functionality uh, that they provide in, in harnessing those energy systems. Uh, some of the other things, I, I really like the Cornelian cherries. Uh, there's a very t- uh, various types of edible dogwoods go in that family. Uh, goji berries, uh, Nanking bush cherry. Uh, there's just a tremendous variety. The thing to do is you just start figuring out everything that can grow on your property and make a list of it. And then make a list of the properties that that plant has. Does it fix nitrogen? Does it need rich soil? Does it need full solar exposure? Does it grow well in shade? Is it deciduous, meaning do the leaves fall off? Is it perennial? Is it annual? Is it an annual that's self-receding? Um, what animals do you have on the property? What animals would feed on that? Do you want the animals feeding on it or not? When you do that and you make that master list, then you start to say instead of what am I going to plant, you kind of come up with a list of things you could plant, and then you come up with a list of their attributes, and then you stack them in your system based on your property. One of the first things you need is a rough sketch of your property. Draw your house. I don't care if you can't draw. I can't draw very well. The outline of your property. Try to get it somewhat to scale. Use graph paper. Where's the path of the sun in the summer? Where's the path of the sun in the winter? What are your prevailing summer winds? What are your prevailing winter winds? You know, what would you what climate zone are you in? Um, is there any water on the property? You know, are you going to be putting water on the property? If so, where should it go? You know, all all of these things, and then just be creative with it. And that way, when you walk out your door, you can literally walk out your door and start eating. And uh, I think that's something that can be done in just about every suburban uh, home in America if we just take a little bit of effort there. It's a great question. Let's go to another one. Here's one I get various versions of all the time, but I'll keep answering it because it's something everybody seems to want to know. Since I have a question for you, how do you prepare as a survivalist without people you know, family and friends, thinking you are a survivalist in the mainstream media term? Uh, mainstream media term. I think using something like the Haiti earthquake would be a good excuse, but it's hard to shake the stigma of being prepared. I understand that I shouldn't let people's opinions prevent me from preparing my family for just in case, but it's also hard to ignore. Thanks again for your show. Um, yeah, for your own prepping, definitely don't even worry about it. I mean, that, that's what it comes down to. The question was really, though, more how do we kind of spread the word, so to speak? How do I say to my family, my friends, hey, you guys need to be prepared, too? I think that the Haitian earthquake is maybe a good one, but I think an easier way is just ask them about the last time their power went out. When's the last time your power went out? It's almost a constant in America. That at some point, uh, over a two-year period, you lose power once or twice. And they'll say, you know, this. They say, well, what was it like? Why are you at? I was wondering, what, did you have lights? And, you know, just say, hey, well, I was just thinking, what if the power went out for a week? You know, what if we had a big ice storm or a big windstorm or whatever, and they kind of got overwhelmed and we had to go without power for a week? What do you think that would be like? See, the biggest way, and this is a sales technique, uh, but it's what you're asking. You're asking me, how do you sell the concept to others? The best way you can sell something is to let the person you're, you're trying to, uh, to, to convey the idea to, to transfer. See, to me, selling is a transfer of belief. That's why so many pastors uh, also make great salespeople. Because they spend their life learning how to transfer belief. They have belief in a faith, and they transfer that belief and that foundation of belief to the people that they preach to. Well, selling's not much different. Selling is, I believe that you need to be prepared. 
So then my, my agenda is not to make you prepare the way I see fit, but it is to transfer my belief in that need to you. Now, the best thing that I can do is put you in control of that process. So if I start asking you a series of questions with no preconceived ideas of the way that you're supposed to answer them, and when you answer them, I engage you in conversation and lead you to more questions, when I get you to the point where you start asking questions, my job is done. And this is where most salespeople and most evangelists of any concept or thought, not just faith, but evangelists of preparedness, evangelists for a fundraising organization, when I get you to the point where you're starting to ask questions, that's when I need to actually shut up, where the inclination is to start answering them for you. So when you you say to me, well, yeah, you're right, and what do you think would happen if we're out? I mean, do you think we have enough food? Now, this is, this is where people like, oh, it's like, you know, fish with blood in the water. Or like, oh, yeah, see, you need food because, and you start telling them all the things you did. And you verbally puke on them because you've been waiting so long for the opportunity to convey the things that are important to you. And you have their best interest at heart. But now you've ruined everything. You really have. Where if you asked me that, well, do you think we have enough food? I'd say, I don't know. How much food do you have? See? And when they told me, I'd say, well, how long do you think that would last? And they'd say, well, that would might last like five days. Do you think that's enough? I'd go, I don't know. If we didn't have power for two weeks, do you think the stores would be open? And they'd say, I don't know. Maybe they would. I said, yeah. And I'd say, well, do you think that maybe more people would go to the store than normal and kind of wipe them out? And they'd go, yeah. Well, do you think five days, you, how much do you think you could get in that period of time? And you kind of like, almost like you're discovering this with them. If you take that journey with them, a journey of discovery with them, they'll start, and you then give them as much as they ask for. But hesitate to immediately answer questions. Unless they say, oh, cut and dry. Look, man, you understand this stuff. I'm in. Help me. Then you can go ahead and kind of give them whatever they're asking for and stick to only what they're asking for. But the big thing is to just get people to think. You know, hey, this flu that just came by, it was kind of a big joke, wasn't it? Well, yeah. I was a little worried, though. Yeah, me too. What were you worried about? Where most people would, in that exchange, immediately, when when the guy says, I was too, would say, yeah, I was, and guess what, I was worried about this and this and this, so here's what we did, and blah, 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 and verbally, blah, throw up on the guy or the lady. And they're like, okay, enough. I don't need all this crazy stuff. Because here's why this exists. The stigma doesn't exist because we're irrational. The stigma doesn't exist because what we're doing doesn't make sense. The stigma exists because people have put this this cocoon of comfort around themselves and they don't want to think about it breaking down. It's hard. And what you have to remember when you're talking to people is the first time you thought about it, it probably was really hard for you to look at too. You have to have patience with people and you have to give them time. And this whole, there isn't any time, there's plenty of time. There's plenty of time for most people. And some people, the shit's going to hit the fan for them tomorrow. And there isn't time for them. But you can't act that way. Because if you act that way, they'll never get prepared. And you need to take the opportunity with the people you care most about whenever there's a good, real-world, concrete example of what's going on uh, to point to, like the Haitian earthquake. That was a great one. 
But what you need to focus on is not the disaster, but the aftermath. You need to have the conversation with, you know, the earthquake killed, you know, I don't even know how many people, but, you know, it killed a lot of people, but people are really suffering now, like two weeks later, because the systems are overwhelmed and they can't support them. So maybe the, the lesson there is not what could happen, but if anything happens, what happens to the things we depend on? See, these are, these are gentle entry points that allow people to start walking the journey for themselves. And I think that maybe you need to think about what I've been telling you since day one. Take my information, do with it as you please. I can tell you how to store food. I can tell you how much food I store. I can tell you what types of things I store. But then you have to take that information, tailor it to your life, your economy, your, your personal economic conditions, uh, the size of your home, uh, all of those things. You have to think about how that fits in your life, and you have to tailor it to yourself. Let people you're talking to do the same thing, and things will go a lot smoother for you. You have a lot more success in kind of spreading the word. As far as what people think of you for doing it, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that at all. Taking care of yourself and your family is too important to worry about people, what people think. Remember your mom said if everybody jumped off the bridge, would you do it too? That's all you need to know as far as what they think of you. But when it comes to helping them see the light, you do have to think about how they feel and how they think. And understand that it's the same reaction that people get when they see a certain news story that's so horrific and hits so close to home. Maybe a mother losing a child in a very scary way. And a lady at home with a child of the same age that was recently in a similar circumstance immediately changes the channel. It does not that she doesn't believe it. She doesn't want to look at it. And that's a lot of this, what we, we perceive as stigma is not stigma. It's a fear of how real the situation is. Nobody wants to think about it. Everybody wants to defer it. And hopefully it won't affect me. But we realize that that reality can come crashing down at any time. And it is up to us because the more people we help become just a little bit prepared, 30 days of sustainability, the better we'll get through just about any disaster that will ever come our way. It is a selfish thing in a way to spread preparedness because if your neighborhood's prepared, you don't have to worry about them turning on you in a disaster. And a lot of the fears that kind of the tinfoil hat survivalist fringe have go away if we help other people prepare. Okay, let's take another one. Okay, Matt says, I'm thinking about buying a new vehicle. I can't afford to, so I'm trying to decide on car or truck. What are your thoughts? I think a car will get far better fuel economy than a truck, say a Honda Civic compared with a Toyota Tacoma, but the truck is more versatile and a shit at the fan scenario. My truck uh, may be more useful because I can go off pavement if necessary, haul more stuff. Um, I know it's just a man thing, but if I can only have a truck or a car, I'm going to buy a truck. I don't know, I'm not going to buy a little tiny, you know, compact truck. I'm going to buy a big, tough, mean, hauling, pulling, uh, big old Dodge Ram or a big old Ford or a big old Chevy or something like that, uh, just like I own. Um, in, a, in a perfect situation, I would own a car and a truck, and I would use the car for running around and the truck for utilitarian needs. Um, I'm a big fan of diesels. Um, it just wasn't really an option for a variety of reasons when I bought the truck that I have now, or probably both of my vehicles would be diesel. Uh, but that said, I actually like the idea of having one vehicle diesel and one vehicle gas. It creates redundancy in a shoot-at-the-fan situation. The, the prepper that's being organized would say, now i got to store two fuels. But the opportunist would say, but I have vehicles that can run on either, so if the opportunity to acquire a fuel that will work in either one comes up, I at least have some level of mobility. So 
Um, a perfect solution would be two vehicles, but you know you can't afford that, so good. Um, if you're only going to buy one new vehicle, buy a truck. If you can't afford it, because what I can't afford it means is you're going to go out and spend $35,000 on a vehicle, um, which it doesn't sound like you're going to do, but I want this to be more generic for other people. Don't buy a $40,000 vehicle. Go buy a, one really solid vehicle and buy a used vehicle cash to fill the niche that the other one. So maybe you go buy a new car and a beat-up old truck. Because trucks, and I mean mechanically sound but physically beaten, um, trucks right now are being thrown away almost. They can be bought for next to nothing. You can go out and buy a Dodge or a Chevy or a Ford that sells new for around $30,000 in the five-year-old range um, under 100,000 miles, uh, maybe one that's been used for some work and is cosmetically dinged up a bit, for around $5,000 right now or less. Uh, I just saw one. It was six years old, but it only had 72,000 miles on it. It was a Dodge Ram four-door. Uh, it looked beautiful. I mean, this truck was aesthetically beautiful, and it was, uh, I think, $6,200. And that was that truck probably sold for in the 30s when it was new. And a truck like it will sell for in the 30s now if they can find anybody to buy it. So that would be kind of like cheating your answer a little bit. Nice new car, very, very affordable, save up the cash and buy a big truck. And that might work for you as well. But if you just press me and say, answer the question as I asked it, go with the truck, flexibility, mobility, and cargo capacity. Because with a truck, it also, you know, a good-sized truck, we can get a great big trailer, just a cheap flatbed trailer. And we'd haul an awful lot if we have to between the bed of the truck uh, and the trailer. So that's that's the way I'd go with that one. Simple question, as simple as an answer as I guess I'm capable of giving. Uh, next guy says, I have an empty rabbit hutch, uh, and uh, it's sitting in his backyard. Won't have rabbits till spring. Consider turning it into a trap to catch squirrels. Uh, and he gives me, like, how he's going to do that, which I don't think I'm going to read on the air. Uh, but his questions are, how legal is this? Second... Uh, since I'm in the city and I can't use a 22, how would you recommend killing a trap squirrel that will avoid getting me bitten and will be uh, still be quick and humane for the tree rat? Um, let's start out with legality. Uh, probably not very. Um, unlike a lot of critters that might be in your backyard, in most states a squirrel is considered a game animal and it's probably completely illegal to trap unless some states make allowances for them are they being pets in your backyard and if that's the case so you got to check your own state law on that you didn't tell me what state you're in so I can't even try to look that up for you probably not that I would that's a call to your fishing game department uh, five minutes on the phone hey I have squirrels in my backyard I consider them a pest animal is it legal for me to trap them and eliminate them from my own property in a suburban situation and they'll tell you yes or no very quickly and they'll you know be able to tell you why yes or no is the case assuming that it's legal um, if you wanted to trap squirrels for the purpose of killing them and eating them then I would say leave your rabbit hutch to the rabbits Get some good, you know, robust rat traps and set traps for your squirrels with rat traps because that will kill them on contact and it avoids the situation that you just said. You got an animal that's scared and, and squirrels can be quite aggressive when cornered, uh, and quite tough and you're trying to kill it, uh, and that can be hard. Now, if I had a trap squirrel that had to kill it and I couldn't fire a 22, well, what I wanted, I want a good high powered pellet gun, close range shot to the head, done end of story if you had them in a kind of a smaller trap um 
my uncle, when he took his taxidermy course, trapped a bunch of red squirrels. And the way he uh, killed them so they wouldn't have any damage to the bodies whatsoever was uh, with a box that was designed to uh, fit over a tailpipe of the car, and he killed them with CO2 poisoning. And uh, that's not a big smoke coming out of the tank, things in there gagging. That's let the car run for a while and then run CO2 out of the exhaust pipe through just like people commit suicide in garages with. And it's supposed to be painless. I think I'd rather be shot in the head than asphyxiated with CO2. But, you know, what do I know? I that's a pretty grim thing to think about anyway, so I'd use a pellet gun. But the answer is it's probably not technically legal. You need to find that out for yourself and make your own risk assessments. Setting up a trap like you described, a live catch trap, trapping squirrels in your backyard while you're trying to trap rats, um, in quotes, is probably legal as long as you then, once the squirrel is trapped, release it. Uh, it's probably legal in most areas to trap squirrels and release them somewhere else. So that might be what you do instead to practice your trapping technique. And if the squirrel ends up dead, I don't know anything about it, and neither do you, okay? That's all I can say with that. Um, but I do think it makes a lot of sense to start practicing with different traps, especially live catch traps in backyards to know what we would do if we had to. I might even do some things with some bird traps uh, coming up in the future that I'll put on YouTube for you where I will be releasing the birds and not trying to circumvent any kind of uh, legalities like that just to demonstrate uh, some very simple ways where you can actually trap a lot of game. But trapping squirrels for, for the purpose of consumption is almost definitely illegal where you are. Trapping them for removal is prob- probably legal. Make a phone call and find out. But if you got to put down an animal where you can't use a firearm, again, a good solid pellet gun is probably uh, the best and most legal way to do that. Uh, next one comes from Brian. Brian says, I just listened to the episode where you mentioned that because of your podcast, there's been as many, and this is a kind of a, uh, I'm shifting into to more of letters from readers here than questions. Okay, I just listened to an episode where you mentioned because of your podcast, there's been as many as a thousand gardens started. I just wanted to say thank you. I have one of those gardens. For years, I've prepped and stockpiled, but never took the time to really see the big picture. Picture. Last year, my garden was very productive, beginner's luck, and I absolutely enjoyed every minute I spent working in it. You made me see survival in a whole new way. By the way, I think you can take credit for more gardens than you think. Because of my garden last year, I was able to get two other friends excited to plant this year. All thanks to you. Please keep up the good work. You are truly making a difference. That's really awesome. And I have this one and another one because it ties back to an earlier question. Remember the question, how do I get them thinking about survivalism and preparedness and stuff without taking the mainstream survivalist view? Gardening is the way. Gardening and permaculture. When people come over to our house, if they if they do ask a little bit, we'll say, "Yeah, you want to? This is how we do some food storage and stuff like that." And you know, here's our emergency supplies, our flashlights, our batteries and stuff in case power goes out. And, you know, we'll show people like that, especially trusted, close people, that type of thing. Uh, but they never like, "Oh, wow, I need to do that." Occasionally, like, "Yeah, we should be a little more prepared." But people that are kind of in that slumber still don't really snap to it. Like, they think, yeah, "I should get a flashlight." I'm thinking. Well, I just showed you our entire power out kit, right? That flashlight is one minor component of it. Uh, there's so many more things we have to worry about than lighting when the power goes out. Most people have a candle or a flashlight somewhere in the house. It's getting to it, but the way it's organized, and you know, you don't get it. But when people come over in the middle of summertime, and my garden is just in full production, 
And it's not just food, but it's beautiful. And I just grab a pepper off a plant and hand it to somebody. Says, just eat it. It's clean. It's safe. Go ahead and eat it. And they eat that pepper two seconds after it's pulled off of the plant. The taste is incredible. And they all say, well, we need a garden. You know, at least for that moment, they're serious about it. And they start thinking about it. And that's the big thing is can you get people thinking about it? As for more than a 1,000 gardens, man, I hope that's true. That's my goal. I want. It, I can only do so, so much here. Uh, we have over ten thousand downloads a day now. We have over nine thousand people as regular feed subscribers. That means they're pulling the show by feed every day, like a person. That, that's like a person that has their radio tuned to a station, and when they get in and start the car, that's the first station they hear. That's what that's like. So we have over nine thousand people like that now. Um, but still, just a minuscule number. But if every one of those people plants a garden, be it a great big garden or a patio garden, and spreads that to two or three people, and that spreads one more layer, we get into the numbers in the millions very, very quickly. And that's spreading the word. And that's doing it in a very, very low-edge way. Because what happens when people plant gardens and they're successful with them? They end up with a surplus. And generally, the person that told them about the garden is the one they're going to be kind of making their little garden mentor. Now, what do I plant? How do I plant it? Yada, yada, yada. Hey, man, we got all these beans now. What do I do with them? Get a dehydrator. Steam them for blanching purposes. Put them on a dehydrator. Dehydrate them. Store them in some Ziploc bags. Well, what about the ones that are going to be there a lot longer than that? Maybe if I don't use as many of them. Hey, get a vacuum sealer. See where this goes, right? You know, hey, uh, you know... Uh, the garden's coming to an end this year. Uh, I'm going to have to plant next year. Maybe you should put some perennials in. What are perennials? We need to get you doing some more permaculture things. Look, let's plant some bushes and some trees and some stuff like that. And then, you know, later into it when you have all these berries or nuts or whatever, now what do I do? So next thing you know, you're teaching people to store food without ever using the word survivalism. And then they start thinking, well, wow, if I can do this with green beans in my yard i can do it with green beans from the store and all of a sudden you're kind of teaching them some you know somewhat subversively how to be a modern survivalist because you're just doing what your grandparents did planting a garden and helping your neighbor do the same so great great uh piece of feedback thanks for that that's inspiring to me to keep doing what i'm doing i love knowing that that's happening okay now the next one is kind of in the same vein keith emails me and says she sounds just like you and gives me a link and it's this lady i've got a bunch of bunch of uh feedback on from a lot of you guys asking me to talk about her so i'm gonna talk about her this lady in texas that uh has no interest in being a survivalist at least not on the surface sits down with her husband toward the end of last year and says our grocery bill is through the roof. We've got to do something. And they start looking at why. And they realize they're throwing food away. They're not planning their meals out in advance. They're cooking things that maybe not everybody in the family likes. Um, they're doing impulse buys at the grocery store. And they just say, you know what, let's make a list of everything they eat, everything they don't eat, and get that off the list, side dishes and things like that. And let's come up with all the stuff that we should be buying uh, and the quantities we need to prepare a meal with. And then sat down and put that to a calendar. And she planned every meal in her home for a year. And they were showing, like, her, her pantry and her freezer. And it and, and she I don't know if she sounds just like me, but it looks like mine. Right? You open her freezer and all the meat is in specific portion sizes for making a single meal. 
wrapped up in additional placket packaging, labeled, packaged, and stacked. Right? So that if we're going to, and this is way beyond me on organization on the next level. So it's, you know, today's Monday, January 25th. She looks at her calendar and it says what she's making for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And she goes to where those things are stored, pulls them out. I think it's a beautiful way to live. I don't know if I have, um, kind of the anal retentiveness necessary to do that. I'm kind of an eccentric guy. That's what makes me who I am. If I can get my wife doing this, this would be awesome. She doesn't even have to cook. If she would just organize it, I'll do the cooking. So I'm going to be talking to her about this. But it's an awesome little story in a video. And I'll put a link in today's show notes. If you haven't seen this, you can uh, check it out. But this is a perfect example of eat what you store and store what you eat. And I guarantee you that they're not thinking about longevity one bit here. They're thinking about ease of uh, ease of, of maintenance and organization and cooking. And they're thinking about financial savings. And because of that, I guarantee you, just looking at her pantry and her freezer, if uh, those people were told you can't leave the home for 60 days, they're going to be just fine. They might not even deviate from their menu. And she was talking about, listen to this stuff, buying in bulk, buying when items are on sale, and putting putting them away in appropriate sized packaging so that they'll last long enough and be part of the meal, knowing exactly what they eat, how they like to prepare it, and what they need to purchase so that they can prepare it that way. Now, if we took these people and just said, okay, here's all the things you eat, let's look at some long-term storage that fits that need from the providers like Mountain House and things like that, and then we threw a dehydrator in that home and a garden in the backyard, They'd go from 60 days to 6 months without even thinking about it. They'd be one of the most prepared families from a food standpoint in America. They're probably top 1% right now. You know, they're probably not up there with some of the preppers that are up to 6 months to a year. But compared to the average American, they're the top 1% to 2%. I guarantee you that. But just with those little tweaks and additions, and if we said, okay, let's be prepared for a power outage, we could turn this family into the ultimate survival family with a very small investment of time and money because they've got the core, the food, centered around their daily lives anyway. This is what I've been saying from day one. So now let's go back to that question, see how it ties together. All this stuff meshes together. This is a, a homeostatic environment we're trying to create with our mentality here. Um, we take the thing, how do I share preparedness with my friends? Well... We say, hey, look, let's do a one-month menu planning thing. Let's get all the girls together, right, you women that like your little social groups and whatever, right, and don't want to sit around and drink beer and, and, and be disgusting the way men do. You want to get together and do something productive. Why don't you get your little girlfriends together, sit down around the table, and say, let's look at this lady's video. A year, that's too much. Let's try this for one month. Let's do it together. It'll be fun. Let's plan out our menus for it. We want to do the same exact things. Let's go to the store together. Let's take a big social engagement out of it. How many preppers could be created that way? Men, you should be doing it every time you go to hunting camp, right? Every time you go to deer camp, fishing camp, camping, anything like that, that's a great chance to share it and, look, have everything planned out and prepared. But but I think this is, like, a really great tool for women to use because it fits the natural social nature of females. You guys have a different way that you interact with each other. You guys talk about stuff with each other that we don't, that's why we like different movies, right? You guys watch, females watch a movie and they're like, that was an amazing story. And we're like, they didn't blow nothing up. The only person that died got sick at the end and died. That was the one that he was in love with and now she's gone. I don't get it. 
right? And we call, we're called Neanderthals by our females. That's okay. That's a natural difference. We're built differently for a reason so that we can work together uh, and create a family unit. But let's use those strengths. So females that are out there are like, how do I spread this to my family and friends? I think this is a great way. I think Tammy that's going to be on the show later this week with Dehydrate to Store, she's spreading the prepper message by being almost like, you know, I don't want to say it because I hate the person's name, but it's the only one that will come in my head right now, almost like a Martha Stewart type thing, right? But it's, she's not like Martha Stewart. So, Tammy, if you're listening today, I don't mean to insult you. But that's the, the, what I'm talking about is the way that the, the, the concept's being sold by Tammy. Here's my dehydrator, my beautiful kitchen. Let me make an awesome soup for you in a crock pot and show you how easy it is. Here's how you put the food away. This way you can do it in bulk and have it. And then she'll throw things in later down the road, like I listen to Gerald Salente and Lyndon LaRouche, and we could have real problems with hyperinflation. But even with that stuff thrown in there, if you want to tune that out, what you still get is the image of somebody whose life is being lived in a way that's more affordable and easier with really good food. So this lady, Tammy uh, from Dehydrate to Store, uh, the other things that we've talked about today with gardening, these are the ways that you spread self-sufficiency without that stereotypical view. Um, let's go to take somebody else. Next one comes from a person uh, named Jake. Jake says, hi, Jack. Uh, recently, this guy's all about our sponsors and, and our discount memberships. And I just want you guys to hear from real people that are dealing with our sponsors. Hi, Jack. I recently placed my first orders with Safe Castle Royal and Wilderness Solutions. Have been a long-time buyer from Tea Party Silver. And as others said, Mary Beth is a fantastic lady. Unbelievable to think there are still other small business people out there who still care. It was a real pleasure to talk to Vic. He was a very understanding fellow. The cocoa bolos from Wilderness Solutions are things of beauty. I was able to surprise a fellow prepper who always wanted one. He couldn't say enough great things either. He was physically shaking. He was so excited about the quality of the gift. Um, have been a long-time buyer from Tea Party Silver. Thanks to you and others have said very, that's I, somehow I got a double in there. Sorry, folks. Uh, wish I still had my old copy of Making the Best of Basics from the 70s. But I'm sure glad to have found Mr. Stevens' latest version, which I'm reading now. So that's Making the Best of Basics, folks. Check that book out. You can find it on the site. Uh, my family's had a small business for 40 years, and it's awesome to see that there are still folks out there who treat their customers like we do. I always go out of the way to deal with small business because I know what it's like. Thanks very much for a great show. And you've helped me and my family achieve all and all the great sponsors you bring to us, as well as folks uh, like Johnny Max and the Queenette over at SS Homestead. I sleep better at night. I don't get all, oh, okay. I sleep better at night. And hey, don't get wrapped up around the axle about what all the ass clowns are doing these days. Thanks to y'all. Th- uh, take care, Jake. So, you know, there's just a listener that's just saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm dealing with the people that you're recommending. They're taking good care of me. Thank you for doing that. And I appreciate hearing like that. So if you guys have had great experiences with our sponsors or with our supporting vendors uh, in the MSB, let us know because other listeners need to hear that. They need to know that it's not just me. I've tried to be above board with the way I do everything and tell you I try to deal with small business people. They have to get approved. If they don't get approved, they don't get on the site. But when people hear from real people uh, just like them that are out there living their lives every day, that don't live in this world 24-7 like I do now, I think it makes a difference. And I love to hear that because it lets me know I've made the right choices. And if, you, if I've made the wrong choices, tell me. They don't tell me I looked at it and I didn't like it and I don't like these people. Well, you know what, if you do business with them and they don't take care of you, tell me. 
and I will read them the Riot Act, and they'll be once one degree away from being fired as a sponsor if they really didn't take care of somebody. I've never had that email. I've never had that phone call. I've never had a complaint about one of my sponsors yet because I think we're rigorous about the way that we bring people into the fold. So, hey, thanks for sending that. Um, here's another uh, email, kind of a letter thing, that I thought was just kind of cool and I'd share with you. Uh, and I'll just read it to you and then I'll tell you my thoughts on it. This comes from Josh. Josh says, Listening to an older episode on vehicle prep reminded me of a story my father-in-law told me. You'd mentioned not to put more than five gallons in a five-gallon jug, even though more might fit. He was in the Army stationed in Korea. I don't recall what his job was exactly, but he basically drove Jeeps to pick up officers and drove them around. Uh, he also drove trucks around and carried supplies to different camps or whatever. Uh, anyway, anyway, he said there was a place where the Koreans would trade with soldiers for fuel from the trucks. They could get supplies, booze, and their trucks washed. They had two and five-gallon drugs and would siphon fuel from the truck as payment. Uh, he said it was always seemed like they were getting more than two or five gallons out of the plastic jugs. At one point, he inquired about it. Apparently, they would fill these jugs with water and freeze them. It would stretch the plastic and increase the capacity. I'm not advocating this. I just thought it was an interesting story. Josh, I think it's a really neat story. And I think it goes back to teaching us what we've lost and how quickly people will adapt to any situation. Here was the situation that these people had. They're in a situation of scarcity. Gasoline was probably more valuable to those people than cash. It was probably harder to get. And it wasn't they were ripping the soldiers off. They wanted to get as much of it as they could, and the soldiers really weren't supposed to be giving it to them anyway. So rather than seeing somebody that has a shrewd business practice here, what I see is someone that adapts. So imagine this. There's a little Korean dude. You got these uh, American Army guys here that are willing to give you some gasoline. You got this container. You want to get more gas in it. How do you do it? And all it takes is one person to figure it out and start sharing it, and then everybody starts doing it. Now, is this the safest thing in the world to do? Probably not, but I doubt these were containers that were sitting around filled up with fuel for very long. I'm sure more than one of them ended up ruptured by the process, and it probably took them a while to figure out exactly how much water to put in uh, to get the expansion uh, without uh, getting damage to the, the can. But... What we learn from this is how adaptable human beings are to any situation. And I think that if you want to learn how to survive and adapt and overcome and do all the things that we talk about, you know what? Just look at the third world. In Korea, I wouldn't even call the third world. I, you know, I'd call that just, you know, maybe one. You know, there, there's places where people in Korea live as good or better. You wouldn't even know you're not in the United States except everybody around you is Korean. Um, but in some parts of the countryside there, there's still people that live kind of a tough life. And if you just look at the places in the world where people have to feed themselves from the land, or where people have to scrape by with less resources, you'll see how adaptable human beings really are, and you'll see how creative human beings really are. And the problem is we've gotten to a point where it's so easy to live, where so much is just given to us, where we can just order more, ask for more, order a refill, or or uh, do an extra hour's worth of work and buy another thing, that we've lost that creativity capacity. So it's good to look at it. So thanks for that email. I got one more quick one that I want to uh, share with people uh, before I sign off today. And it's another thing that, like, 
I was right, and I didn't know why I was right. And I really never thought that I'd ever talk about this, because I never thought they would start talking about really doing something like this. But this really disgusts me. Uh, But I guess it was inevitable that it would happen. Scott sends me an email. All it says is 401k, screw job coming. It's a fairly old email. I should have gotten to this earlier. But it comes from Market Ticker. And uh, I'll put a link in today's show notes. But here's the upshot of this. The uh, the federal government is looking at going after and creating captivity around your 401k uh, account in the future under the auspices of protecting you from da- the dangerous market conditions that are out there and making sure that you have money for the rest of your life to come out of your 401k. What this would mean is if you decided at like 75, screw it, I want all my money, I'll pay whatever taxes I have to, give me my money, uh, if they get this thing to go through, you won't have that option anymore. Or if you said, you know what, I want to put it into this class of an investment, I know there's more risk, but I, I have the the, uh, the capability to assume that risk at this point, even though I'm older, and uh, I'm probably going to be leaving most of this money to my heirs anyway, you won't be able to do that either. Well, how would they do something like this? Well, again, you know, the reason I never thought they'd do it is I figured the only way they would get it done is to come at it with, hey, we just have to do it, we're screwed, we're bankrupt, whatever, we're taking your money away, and I didn't think they would ever get away with it that way. But these creative scum in our government, in our Treasury Department, are so slick, they've come up with a way to get at your 401k money if they get this thing to go through. Here's what it says from Business Week. This is part of this article. Quote, the U.S. Treasury and Labor Departments will ask for a public comment soon as next week on ways to promote the conversion of 401k and individual retirement accounts into annuities or other steady payment streams, according to the Assistant Labor Secretary, Phyllis C. Borzai, Deputy Assistant Tre- Treasury uh, Secretary Mark Irwin, uh, who are spirit and okay and Deputy Assistant Treasury uh, Secretary Mark Irwin, who are spearheading this effort. Um, This is really kind of twisted what they're talking about doing. What they're saying is they want to make sure that um, you will never be without, that you will never be at a point where your money will be gone from your 401k. So what they would do is they would look at you and say, Jim, uh, you have half a million dollars in your 401k account. We think that 200000 of it need to go into a lifetime annuity for you. Here's the annuity you'll be having. Here's the income it'll be producing. And this is what you're doing with your money, whether you like it or not. That's the upshot of what this is all about. So let me read some excerpts from the uh, the, the uh, Business Week article on this. So this is mainstream media reporting this now. The Obama administration is weighing how the government can encourage workers to turn their savings into guaranteed income streams following a collapse in in retiree accounts when the stock market plunged. The U.S. Treasury and Labor Departments will ask for public comments next week on ways to promote the conversion of 401k savings and individual retirement accounts into annuities or other steady payment streams, according to Assistant Labor Secretary Phyllis C. Borzai and Deputy Assistant Secretary Mark Irby, who are spearheading the effort. Annuities generally guarantee income until the retiree's death, and often that of a surviving spouse as well. They are designed to protect against the edge of risk and retirees that outlive their savings. Danger is made clear by market losses suffered by older Americans over the last year. David Setner, uh, Legislative Counsel for AARP, said in an interview. So here we go. 
uh, Obama reaching out to AARP again, who he's reached out to on the four, uh, the, uh, the healthcare issues and saying, Hey, we got to protect retired people by forcing them into annuities. But, you know, it's really just, it's a scam to allow the government into your private accounts. And what they're going to eventually say is, Hey, look, this money is in the public interest to protect. Hey, it was never taxed. We got to protect this money. If these scoundrels on Wall Street steal it, it'll never be taxed because it'll never get paid out. That's that's going to be the next thing that we're going to hear. Uh, back on to uh, market ticker on Derringer.net. Let me tell you what this is. It's an attempt to prevent the collapse of the treasury market. Forcing people into treasuries as an annuity is exactly what Social Security allegedly is. Except the treasury stole that money that was collected in FICA taxes and they spent it. Guess what? They'll do that here too. You're going to invest in treasuries, which of course are effectively a call option on the future taxing ability of the government. The problem is with the aging population and the immigrant population, illegal immigrants that is, along with offshoring, the aggregate wage base will drop and thus the most dangerous become the most dangerous investment of all. So here's what this guy's actually saying. When you invest in a treasury, and you give the United States government your money and buy a treasury note, the only way they get their money is from the people in the form of taxation. Okay, does that make sense? The government cannot get money any other way. The government is not in the business of selling cheeseburgers at McDonald's. They're not in the business of making widgets. They're not in the business of hiring out the United States military. It's not like Japan can phone us up and go, yeah, we'd like uh, to order 100,000 troops to... Uh, to defend our southern, you know, our southern island or forests or anything like that. We're not in the mercenary business. I'm not saying we should be. I'm just saying this is the reality. There's nothing the United States government does to earn a profit. Right? Makes sense? Okay. So when you give them money and they say we'll pay you 5% interest on your money over 10 years or whatever, and they're going to pay you back 5% a year over 10 years, and you give them one dollar figure and they're going to give you back another dollar figure the only place they get that money is through taxation so you're giving them more money today than they have nobody borrows money they don't need does that make sense if you had a million dollars and you wanted to buy a hundred thousand dollar house odds are you wouldn't go borrow a hundred thousand dollars you'd pay for it because why spend the interest? You could then take the money you'd be using to repay the loan and you pay yourself back and get ahead faster that way, right? So you would reserve your capital rather than go into debt. The government would do the same thing, except it cannot do that because it doesn't have a source of income other than you, the economy. And what this guy's saying is if you force enough people into the treasury market to force them to buy treasury notes to give them a guaranteed return of investment. And this is starting to make me wonder about George Bush's privatizing Social Security and if that's ever what it was really going to be if he got it done. Then you're making all those people go into that marketplace where they're betting that the government will be able to raise more money by taxing people more. What's the problem with that? Well, what this guy's saying is with a recession and a depression, at a time when people need their money the most out of those annuities, the prevailing wages drop, you can't raise taxes because people don't have the money, and the government's revenue from taxation declines. 
So we're creating a second social security crash if we do this to people. Basically what they're doing is they're creating another social security uh, administration, a new one that's supposed to solve the problem the old one created, taking your private money and forcing it into it. That's what this would be. And I've been saying a long time, don't put all your money into a retirement account. I was saying it so you'd keep it liquid. Now I'm saying not only would you keep it liquid, but you would keep some portion of it away from them so that they can't come in and, and, uh, and hijack it. That's what this is. You can read the articles for yourself. I need to wrap up today. I've gone a little bit long again today, as I seem to do on my Monday shows. But I'll tell you what. This is one of the sleaziest, most disgusting, revolting things a government could do to its people that I've ever seen. What they're basically saying is that they're going to go look at the money that you've put away, that you've saved, that you've done the right things for, and take private money and turn it into public money. Because they'll say it's an annuity, it guarantees you a payment. But if they control it and they force it into the treasury note market, then you're loaning the money to the government. The government then controls the money. The the government then determines how the money is spent. Why would they do this? Because the United States government is in imminent danger of complete, total collapse from bankruptcy. That's why. Because our treasury market's about to fall through the floor, and it needs an infusion of new cash. And the people that have it are all the people that are getting close to retirement that have big, fat 401k accounts in spite of the biggest crash that just happened. There's still a ton of money there, and they want to rate it, and they want to force it into that market. They don't want to cut and dry take it away from you. They want to tell you how to use it. And that's what I've always said about the government. It's not that they want the money. They want the control of the money. That's really what it comes down to. So this one bugs me. Please read the articles. Please get informed. And uh, please let your congressional crown and your Senate critter know that uh, you're not happy about this one either, and they better not let this thing go forward. This is this is as big a disaster, if not bigger, than what health care reform could be. This might be the thing they go after next. Obama's been making a big stink about bank executives getting bonuses because the company's profitable. We won't get into that today, but... This stuff, I see how it all meshes together, and it disturbs me and it bothers me. And nothing could be more sacred than respecting private property. That's what makes this country different. Your property is your property. You own it. We've already violated that with the income tax on personal income. But at least it's supposed to be, we'll tax you and whatever's left is yours. Now we're saying the very money that you've put away, the government wants to take control of it. So check the article out. Stay strong, my friends. Stay prepared, my friends. Make sure that you're protecting yourself. Don't panic about this. I don't want 20 emails. Should I liquidate my 401k? I'm going to tell you the answer is going to be no. Don't liquidate your 401k, for God's sakes. Fight back first. That's the first thing to do. And second of all, if you're putting 10% in and you're not saving any other money, cut your contribution to 5% and put the other 5% somewhere where you can get your hands on it. That's what you do. And beyond that, keep planning, keep prepping, keep dedicated, keep building. Believe in yourself and your individual uh, ability to control your own life and your own destiny. The number one thing that makes people survive is knowing what they do matters. Never forget that what you do matters. Never stop acting. Never stop taking the steps. And keep doing the things that are necessary to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream. You can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.